Turn with me to Romans chapter 13 this morning. I know you're like, didn't we just turn to Romans chapter 13? We are continuing on verses 1 through 3. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Big Woods Bible Church. Happy Father's Day to every single one of our fathers. If you are a dad, if you are a granddad, a great-grandpa-pop, whatever, just raise your hand so we can understand who's here today. Raise your hand. Keep those hands raised. Everyone sees who we are praying for as fathers and grandfathers. If you are a perfect father, keep your hand up. If you're a perfect father, keep your hand up. Wow, that's really weird. They disappeared that fast. January the 27th, 1991, we were engaged in a new conflict in the Middle East. The president was um, H.W. Bush. Um, It was Super Bowl Sunday. Giants beat the Bills. Scott Norwood wide to the right. 11.33 in the morning. I felt bad because it was a Sunday and we were supposed to be in church, but we were having a baby. I remember at 11.33. Wow. My life, our life forever changed. When, and I did, I like totally failed the test and like the whole, like the whole runway time to 11.33. Like, you know, like breathe deep and I'm there for you. I was just totally clueless. I'm just kind of looking in the door. How is it? Everything okay? Doing well? And then they, and then they, then they wrap this thing and they hand it to you and his, his head's all like funny shaped. He's like a cone. I thought there was major issues. We had just given birth to the ugliest child that had ever, ever, ever been born. And for some reason, I don't know, I don't know, you just fall in love with this slimy, screaming little one. Uh, January the 23rd, 1993, almost two years to the day, and it all happened again. I flunked the test. I'm like, everything all right in there? Looking good. Two of the ugliest children, and yet for some reason, you love them. You make mistakes, you, you just raise them, and you're like, Lord, I have no idea. They're, they're yours. They're yours. And you know what? Um, now we're Mimi and Pop Pop, and, and the generation continues on. We've made a thousand mistakes. We are far from perfect, just as every father here is recognized. But let me remind you that we have before us the example of a perfect, perfect heavenly father. The balance of firmness and gentleness that we so, so totally mess up. We have the balance of justice and mercy before us. We have the balance of perfect truth and perfect love. Dads, don't ever, ever give up, but keep your eyes on our heavenly father who assists us, who's a model for us, of how we do this. And those of you who did not have a hand raised, be praying for those who did. Because we need, we need to have strong, godly homes led by strong, godly men. 
We are um, continuing on <clears throat> two subjects that people just don't want to address. We don't talk about religion. We don't talk about politics. We're actually talking about both of them. Kind of introduced Romans chapter 13 last week. We will read again verses 1 through 3. And then we will go to the Lord in prayer. Romans chapter 13. Let me direct your attention to verse 1. <clears throat> let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That, that's about as far as we got last week. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we approach the throne of grace with his word before us? <clears throat> Our heavenly Father, those words have significance in a, in a new way, being reminded of who you are and what you've called us to do and who you've called us to be as followers of you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your unconditional love and your patience. And yet we thank you for your firmness and your justice and your truth. We thank you, Lord, for this day that you have set apart from the rest of all the days of this week, for us to gather together in your house, to, to have your word, perfect word before us, to listen and to learn. And we deal with a subject that is of great complexity. It's a subject of great burden. It's a subject of great worry. It's a subject of great emotion. And Lord, we confess and admit that, that we do not, and I certainly cannot, utter one word apart from your spirit's leading and your spirit's filling me. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak this morning, that we who have been given ears would hear you. We do pray for those in authority over us. We pray that you would grant them wisdom from above. We pray, Lord, for the country that you have allowed us to be a part of. We thank you for the many graces, but we also, Lord, just just fervently pray for the brokenness that exists. Even on Father's Day, I'm reminded, Lord, of the homes and the families that are in absolute chaos and disarray. Father, I pray for healing. I pray, Lord, for a spiritual awakening, a spiritual renewal, a spiritual revival that begins in our hearts, that begins in my heart this morning, that pours out in this room and from this building into this community, from this community in this county and state and country and ultimately in the world. I pray, Lord, for brothers and sisters in Christ that, that live in places and worship in places that they do not have the freedoms that we enjoy. And I pray for them. And we, Lord, regularly lift them up that they would be faithful to the task that they are, in a sense, modeling for us what it looks like to be obedient to you first, to worship King Jesus before any ruling authority. Father, please give me clarity of thought and mind and speech. May you be the attention. May you 
be the focus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. <clears throat> I have found we can continue to review <clears throat> excuse me, the book of Romans, and we can kind of almost like, well, we have to move forward. Chapters 1 through 11 is what in many ways uh, we define and explain and reveal the gospel. Chapters 12 through 16, we've been talking about the application of the gospel. How we, what, live for impact in the culture that we've been called to live in. But we also look around us and we say there's a lot of evil that exists in this world. We've been given instruction clearly what we don't repay evil for evil. Is there justice? Yes. How has God revealed his justice? By ordaining authority. And there's lots of authority over us. There's lots of rules and mandates and regulations and laws. And so the question in many ways is, is government a good thing or not? Is government a good thing? It's a good thing if what? We have, we have water that arrives to our spigot and it's cold and, and clean. It's a good thing when an ambulance arrives after you call 911. It's a good thing our, our kids can go safely to school on a school bus. That's a good thing. And then we look at some of the chaos around us. I'm like, is it really a good thing? Well, what do we do with this? How do we handle living, serving, obeying God first in a world that is on fire in many ways. Lord willing, we saw that we're striking balance here more than anything else. Balance from an, what I call last week an over-realized eschatology that would say the kingdom of God is here, so just ignore Caesar, do whatever you want to do. Or what? An under-realized eschatology. The, the kingdom is not yet, so, so pick up your sword. And we're going to go to battle against Caesar. We are, we are not to flow to either extreme, as we tend to do. We learned last week we were to live in submission to government authority. Why? Because we, 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 we know that all authority has been ordained by God. And it's actually an opportunity to show others and to be the best model citizens as possible, knowing that he is the ultimate authority. Now, the, the logical ramification for us is actually quite simple. Since we know civil government is an institution of God, to rebel against the government is to rebel against God. Therefore, we do not, under any circumstance, quickly or easily or lightly rise up. And we see this from Scripture because it says in verse 2, whoever resists will incur judgment. The American Standard does not um, choose the words as politely. Matter of fact, it's rather blunt when it says those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. A couple of biblical examples of people that have rebelled against authorities, and it's not very pretty. Old Testament, Numbers chapter 16, there's 250, what, whiners, complainers. We could call them malcontents. Led by men like Korah and Dathan and Abiram and on. They assembled themselves together to complain against those in authority. It was Moses and Aaron at the time. God had appointed these men. And Weiners said stuff like this. Isn't it enough that you brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in a wilderness? And you also lorded over us. In a sense, it's what people pointing to those whom God has placed in authority. What is the response here? If you know any of 
Old Testament history in Numbers chapter 16, the Lord was so angered by their insolence. Here's, here's what happened. The ground that was under them split open. Fire came forth and consumed the 250. Well, there's an Old Testament response of what happens when you whine against those in authority. Matthew chapter 26, another setting that we're very familiar with in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is being arrested. Peter. Oh, Peter, how we love him. He, he just meant so well, didn't he? And yet he blew it like we do oftentimes. When Jesus was being arrested, what we see in Matthew chapter 26 is, is Peter very quickly grabs the sword and, and just starts to swing. Lopping off a servant. A servant's ear. Peter's actions in rebellion here are rebuked by the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. He says, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So you can see that the Lord does not look lightly on this subject. Any rebellion, any disobedience, any revolt. Why? Because Jesus says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Thankfully, in God's providence, we know what? It says, rulers are not a terror to good, but to bad. What does this mean? It means, generally speaking, generally speaking, government is a good thing. No, you're like, really? Yeah, without it, there would be complete anarchy. Evil running even more rampant than it runs today. So now Paul asks the question, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Again, the author directs our attention to the highest authority. God intends for government to do what is good. And I think you would agree with me. I think you would agree with me. Most peaceful Law-abiding citizens have been treated fairly and favorably. <clears throat> Usually, we don't wake up with a fear of government. They're not banging down our door quite yet. But yet, there are poor laws. There are, we, we could even say, bad laws. And it's hard to see past earthly government to the government of God. That's why we begin with what? Knowing that we need to trust in the providence of God. Which means what? You do not put your trust in a political party. Do not put your trust in a particular persuasion or even a personal preference. All of that to say we come down upon a subject that we need to purposely pause on this morning. One point to our entire subject this morning. Yes, we are to submit. Yes, we are to obey. Yes, we are to be model citizens. But the question is this. Are there limits? Looking at all of Scripture, we know the question is, is implied here in our text. Implicit, not explicit. Here's the question. You can write this down. What if government authority goes against the final authority of God? Now we're entering a whole different subject. If you know 
even remotely, if you've studied, I don't care if you got like a D minus in, in, in history of civilization. If you even remotely, even if you sat in the class, were certain times at your attention, kind of like, whoa, that sounds bad. If you are even a remote student of any history, biblical history, church history, you know there has been and most likely there will be multiple scenarios and situations that are described like in Acts chapter 5. Let me direct your attention to verses 17 and 18. And this is a setting and we could, we could change the time and culture. We could change those in authority or the people standing before those in authority. But the picture, the scenario remains exactly the same. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles. These are the twelve. They put them in the public prison. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name. In, in whose name? Like, who, who's, who's upsetting everyone here? We forbid you from teaching in this, that's Jesus, this name. I love this. This is in the latter part of Acts chapter 5. This is 27, 28, and 29. It says, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And, and you, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You, if you underscore anything, highlight in your Bible. Hi- highlight these words, Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. But Peter and the apostles together, they answered, We must obey God rather than men. We must. We must. In, in light of that, Hold on for a minute. What are we to then do with Romans chapter 13? Is, is there, well, many would say, well, there's just a contradiction. That's why you can't believe the Bible because there's too many contradictions within its pages. How, how are we to act or respond? How are we to speak if and when we are told not to mention the name Jesus? When is it actually the right time to not submit to governing authorities. We read Acts chapter 5. That's first century. From the birth of the church. Fast forward. To 21st century. Country after country. From places like China today. Iran. Afghanistan. North Korea. North Sudan. Many governments over the past 2,000 years have, have worked diligently to thwart, to stop, to halt the spread of biblical Christianity. They have worked to shut down what you and I are doing, gathering here in the name of Jesus this morning. They have worked with a goal to ban this Bible. To, 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 To go from home to home to gather them up and burn them and destroy them. And yet for some reason it remains the greatest selling book of all times. 
government after government has sought to forbid the preaching of the gospel. Wait a minute, didn't we just say, is, is that good government? So because government is good, we just simply stop preaching the gospel, correct? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. In Carthage, North Africa, early 3rd century, theologian Tertullian wrote, in defense of Christianity against persecution from without and actually heresy from within. And Tertullian had enormous influence on the early church that still continues to resonate in the church of Jesus Christ today. And he argued that persecution actually strengthens the church as martyrs bravely die for their faith onlookers. People are like, why would they do that? They actually convert to Christianity. It was Tertullian who said what? The famous quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He lived, what, late 2nd century, early 3rd century. Fast forward 1,800 years, and yet it seems, if you look globally, restrictions on religion are stronger now than they've ever been. According to Pew Research, listen to this, 74% of the world's population, that's almost three-quarters of the world's population live in a country where social hostilities involved in religion are quite high. Three quarters of the world's population cannot do what we're doing right now without some tension, social hostility. A little bit less than that, 64% live in a place where the government restrictions are high. It's forbidden some would even argue that, what, there's more restrictions now. More people have died for their faith in the 21st century than in any other century. Thankfully, we, we our context, want to stay within the what, contextualization of where we minister. We have been born, by the way, you had no choice. You had no say in the country that you were born in. That's by God's grace alone. You weren't like kicking in the inside of mama's womb saying, yeah, let's, let's, let's get to that place. You had no say as God's grace alone that you and I have been born in a country with freedom. And it is far from perfect. We know that. But overall, we enjoy an abundance of common grace. Fresh, clean water, safe travels, medical treatment, educational options, the freedom to speak, the freedom to worship. But what happens when we witness, as we have, there's really no other word for it. It's hypocrisy in leadership. You have to do this, and somebody does the exact opposite. What do we do when we live in a place where it, it actually, not just hypocrisy, but it almost seems like you are deceived by those in authority. We live in a place where poor decisions are regularly made. And it's felt. Gas prices and grocery prices and interest rates. And the focus seems to be more about tearing apart one another, attacking one another rather than building up. Surely, surely the culture that we live in with all of that is a description that must be grounds to disregard, disobey, rebel, or revolt, right? No. No, it's not. Sorry, we're not there yet. It is not. 
We are still, as I referenced as recent as last week, we are still to pray for those in authority, to honor those in authority, to obey those in authority, and to pay our taxes. We bought multiple copies. Some of them are made available for you on the back shelf and on the bookshelf. Jonathan Lehman writes in How the Nations Rage. He appropriately reminds us, and I quote, Christians are not cultural warriors, but ambassadors. Let's remember who we are. Let's remember why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing as we are here. We are not about behavioral modification. Just shine them up on the outside. That's not what the church is about. We're not about building a kingdom here on this earth. Rather, our job is to point people to Jesus, first and foremost. To what? To preach the truth about our eternal home rather than focus on our temporal home as it is so easily done today. What are the scripture? What what are the scriptures? What, what what are we called throughout the pages of scripture? There's multiple terms, and they all mean exactly the same thing. Sojourners, oh, good old King James word. So you're just sojourning through. We're pilgrims. We're aliens. We're 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 tenters. I hate a tent. Who wants to stay in a tent? Whose idea was that in the first place? Twice, what? honey, twice, I think, in our time, we've been married for like 33 years. Two nights, we slept in a tent. It was horrible. Bugs, bears. You don't stay in your tent. You, you, you. It's not our home. We're just moving through here. Therefore, what are we supposed to do? I'll tell you what you are to do. Hold your... Oh, this is going to get some emails to me, I can assure you. <clears throat> hold your political party affiliations with a loose grip. There is, there is great danger. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, in the unique time that we are called to live in, there is great, and it is, it is an easy, idolatrous trap to think for a moment, as much as I love, and we are to be grateful for the land of the free and the home of the brave, Danny. We have to remember that America cannot and it will not under any circumstance save you. It just can't do that. What we must not do is confuse our frustration that we feel right now on what I would honestly say, as hard as it is, on trivial matters with our calling and commissioning as redeemed, good, gospel people that are to carry out a message that can change the masses. Now, when I speak about trivial matters, I'm not speaking, as I mentioned last week, we are to speak up for the unborn. They cannot speak for themselves. That's not a trivial matter. We're to hold a high regard for marriage exclusively between a man and a woman as God has ordained. Step back and said, that is a good, that is very good. They're, they're not the trivial matters I'm talking about. The trivial matters are what I whine about when we pay $4.99 for a gallon of gas. Don't confuse our frustration with trivial matters. You have been called, set apart. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. 
He is sanctifying you and I to be good gospel people to carry out a message that can change the masses. Rather, I appreciate the infinite wisdom from above. Matthew chapter, chapter 10, Jesus is, is, he has called his disciples close to him. And he, uh, <laughs> you know, I think as he's staring at those disciples, I think at some, remember he was not only truly God, but he's truly human. And I think at some level, he's looking at these guys and he's like, oh boy, oh boy. He commissions them and he says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. He says, behold, I, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And I'm not into the roaring sheep garbage that has been pushed, okay? Sheep don't roar. We, we are sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, and then there's this, this phrase, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You ever been attacked by a dove before? No, it doesn't happen. Why, why is it that Jesus instructs his disciples, just as the Holy Spirit is, is speaking to you and I right now, why is it that we need, more than anything right now, wisdom and gentleness? Because both of those things, in a sense, push against the very nature of who we are. It, it continues on here. Be, beware. Jesus says, okay, I want you to beware. <clears throat> of men, they will deliver you over to courts, and they will flog you. They'll beat you. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, for my sake, to bear witness before them. When they deliver you over, when they deliver you, not if they, when they deliver you over. Listen to this. Do not be anxious on how you are to speak or what you are to say. For, you are to, for, for, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Father, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Isn't this happening already? Today? Listen, his brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, his child. Children will rise up against the parents. Have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But you. But one who endures to the end will be saved. This, this is a reference. This is speaking of a time that those in authority, that's what, government, are persecuting, attempting to hurt, or, or at least what, halt, thwart, stop the gospel that we have been called to. Therefore, what? And you can mark the day and the hour I am saying you need to be prepared for the occasion when it comes to disobey the state. Pastor Aaron reminded us as he read our call to worship last week from four young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Be, be it known to you, O King, when, when they said you, at the trumpet and the lyre and the harp and when everything like chimes and when the entire world bows here before this and they all bow, 
It says in Daniel chapter 3, 18, be, be it known to you, O king, hey, let everybody hear. We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We will not do that. Wise as serpents and innocent, gentle as doves. Again, Jonathan Lehman is very helpful in, in putting more what I call meat on the bones, describing, defining when is it the right time. Because I, I do not believe it's right now. Lehman writes, God has given government a job to do and its authority only falls inside the jurisdiction that God has established. When government drives outside of its lanes or requires sin inside its lanes, you have no moral obligation to obey. When, when government oversteps their bounds, or in a sense expects you at some level to worship that which we are forbidden from worshiping, then you have, what? No moral obligation to obey. Now, now please hear me. Don't come away. I'm not, I'm not calling for a revolution, okay? Just, just, just calm down. I am, I am what? I am not advocating ever for anyone storming the Capitol under any reason. But I am saying, be prepared. Don't, don't be shocked when the name of Jesus and his message, which is already being marginalized all over the place. As I said last week, the walls are closing in, they're collapsing in on us. When the name of Jesus is forbidden, that, that, that's the time. Here it is. And I was like, okay, what do we do first? I wrote this down. Honestly, this is in my notes. Breathe deep. Like, that's <sighs> the first thing you do. That's not inspired. That's all me, okay? You just, you just breathe deep. You pray fervently. That is inspired. You breathe deep. We pray fervently. And, and I wrote this, and, and this may be speaking metaphorically. I have hold hands. And I'm not talking about like take your shoes and socks off and sit in a circle and we're all going to hum. It's just, it's this idea that, that we have to be together and we have to know who's there, who's going to bolt and run. Some of you will be totally fine with worshiping what the world tells you to worship. And I fear, I fear, some of you I think will be totally fine with denying the name of Jesus. So we have to breathe deep, pray fervently, we hold hands, and we bravely step forward in full obedience to King Jesus first. Yes, that is like hard. Yes, terrifying. But yes, it will be well worth it read the book of Revelation and, and you see what pretty clearly pretty close up both the pain and the blessing of martyrdom of 
persecution, of sacrificial obedience. Do, do you recall how the apostles died? Every one of them being martyred for their faith, with the exception of probably the author of Revelation, John himself, who was boiled in hot oil, and yet he still not die, did not die. So he was exiled to Patmos and died in old age. So we have a history, what, from Stephen? Remember as the rocks were raining down on him, it says that his face glowed like an angel. That there's something unique that happens here. Go to our history books from Polycarp to Perpetua to Thomas Beckett to Wycliffe to Huss. Uh, we have such heroes of our faith. Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Jesus Christ. Christ. We are like Christ. We're one like Christ who offered himself to die so that we could live. That, that's, what, that's what the church of Jesus Christ does. What, what do we do very quickly in closing? Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I've already said that. Wisdom is what? Granted to those who ask. We are told in scripture, those who lack, ask. God promises to give that and we need it. We need discernment in a day like this. Rest in the providence of God. Christ Jesus himself is the providential one. It says that he is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. When we claim the name of Jesus and we preach boldly the name of Jesus, we, we are what? Acknowledging the fact that he is the providential one. Seek to be, until that point, the very best citizens possible. Continue to pay your taxes without wine as hard as it is. To live honorably, to pray faithfully. I was reading somewhere this weekend, and it says, remember to kind of stay under the radar. Like, you don't have to draw attention to yourself. You don't have to be running around holding signs and placards. And can you sign this petition? No, no. Unless it's for those who cannot sign themselves. We, we understand that we fly below the radar and accomplish the work that God has called us to do faithfully. Fourthly and finally, make your ultimate allegiance to King Jesus. You can trust him to your church. I think Paul, although he approached <clears throat> the Lord, it was a personal matter. We don't know what it was, a thorn in his side. It says three times. I, I think although it was a personal matter, I think the response that the Lord gave him is appropriate for us today as we face the challenges that we'll face, the fears, the worries, the stresses. What is the Lord's response in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, that this thorn in the side would be taken care of. But he said what? My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You know, it's really a defining moment in many ways where I think the church can be the ultimate example or we can become the ultimate idiots. And sadly, there have been many congregations that have taken the focus off of Christ, off of the cross, and have placed it on other gods. 
that, that's why it is so important for us as, as we transition and we think, well, like, why, why is it so much about Jesus? It's because what Jesus Christ has done for us. This is the hope and message of the gospel. That Jesus knew that we would be flying in a thousand different directions and we would very quickly forget. Keep the main thing, the plain thing, the plain thing, the main thing. Every single time. We gather, we, we direct our attention to the work of Jesus Christ accomplished both on the cross and in the tomb. Thankfully, Jesus, what? He mandated. This is an ordinance. This is a part of the definition of who we are when we gather. We remember what Jesus Christ did for us when his body was broken, his blood was poured out. And so that's why we, we, we what, regularly remember the Lord's table. And so we're going to do that as a church. I, I think this is the greatest timing for us to remember where our focus is to be. Again, Jesus, is he what? Was completing his, his earthly ministry. He looks out on the twelve. And a lot of us would just kind of like rub our heads and scratch our heads and say, this is it. And Jesus said, I want to give you something here. I want you to hold on to this and remember this. And what did he do? It says that he took bread after they had eaten. And and he says, "I, I have more for you. I have more for you. Don't go anywhere. Don't forget this. Everything slows down. It says they took unleavened bread. It was flat. There was no yeast in it. And, and he showed it to them. And he said, this is a picture of my body. It's, it's in a sense, it's a symbol. And he took that and he broke it. Christ had his body willingly broken. As ones like Christ, we are to be as willing to offer ourselves as sacrifice for the name of Christ. Jesus knew he, was, he created us. He knew how we can very quickly and easily forget things. And so he gave to us. We can smell the bread. You can, you can feel it. You eat it and, and you taste it. And, and, and those things, all of, all of those senses, we hold on tight to it. They pass around. They, they, they ate it. And he says, every single time you eat this, you're remembering what I did for you. And he also took the fruit of the vine and he poured it out. And he said, just as this was poured out, my blood is going to be poured out for you. It says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And he passed around. And they smelled it and they tasted it. Don't forget. Don't ever forget what you're about to witness. That's why we gather as a church, as brothers and sisters, redeemed ones, as we worship King Jesus who did not stay dead but rose again three days later. He says, I want you to go out. I want you to tell everyone that I'm sending you out as sheep amongst the wolves. And it, it may not may not be easy. It may not always look pretty. But it will be well worth it. And so I, I invite you, if you are a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that mean? You've acknowledged the fact that you are broken and one thing we all do well is sin. We're, we're experts in sinning. 
And we recognize that, that our own sinfulness deserves eternal wrath and punishment, separation from God. For the wages of sin is death. One thing that we do earn is death, but God. And we know the message of the gospel says that what he so loved the world, he, he gave his own son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. What is a believer? It's a person who's recognized the fact that they are a sinner in need of a savior and that Jesus Christ who says, I am the way, the truth. No one comes to the Father but by me. We acknowledge that. And we have chosen to live with him being Lord. Of our life. There's only two ordinances of the church. We know that what? The community table and baptism. In the last two weeks, we've personally witnessed baptisms. We talk about the fact that what? We don't just live with Jesus being our Savior. We live in full obedience. We come out of the water to walk in the newness of life. He is Lord of our life. He calls the shots. When you've made that decision for Jesus to be both Savior and Lord, this is for you. We offer this to you. And we encourage you to, to go slow as we remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. What Jesus Christ has done for you. But if you're not a believer here this morning, if you have not acknowledged the fact that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus, and you have not committed to live with him being Lord or in charge of your life, then out of kindness and grace, I'm respectfully asking you please don't take this or please don't drink this because it would be meaningless for you but if you do recognize the fact that there's a broken world and that in our own hearts and lives we are broken and that Jesus is the one who takes broken things and puts them together and makes them new again and you desire for him to be your savior and Lord then today can be the very first time and I would encourage you I would invite you and I would celebrate with you taking the communion table for the first time. I'm going to ask um, men to come forward. They're going to um, take this and go to a station and they're going to have the bread and the cup made available for you. What, what I would encourage is just for a minute or two, quiet your hearts to pray as we're preparing to serve you, thanking the Lord for what he has done for you. In a mo moment or two, we're going to um, go forward and to one of these stations and the men will serve you a piece of the bread and, and a cup. And I would encourage you to take that back to your seats. We'll pray together. I'll bless this. And we will take it. As the men are preparing to serve you, I want to remind you what it is that what it is that Jesus suffered on your behalf the prophet Isaiah says what he was despised and rejected by men he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Listen to this. This is for you. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that, that brought us peace. 
And I don't know if there's a, a greater phrase to summarize what Jesus Christ has done. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the communion table. This is what Jesus Christ has done for you out of love. Take a moment, thank the Lord, and we will serve this to you.
Thank you, brothers, for serving us. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, as we come into your presence, I, I can't help but think the very first time that communion was ever served, ever celebrated. It was done in hiding because people wanted you and your followers dead. And that's our history. We thank you that we can literally see the message of the gospel that has turned the world upside down, that has spread everywhere, that has brought so much hope in a, in a broken world. And we thank you. We thank you for what this uh, piece of bread and what this cup represent, your body that was broken and your blood that was poured out. And we thank you, Lord, that it's because of Jesus and his sacrificial death that we now reaffirm our calling, our commitment, our obedience, and our love for you and our appreciation. Lord, help us not to take this and to race on to the next event. But Lord, help us to pause and be most grateful. And to be willing, just as you are willing to offer yourself for others, that we would be willing to offer ourselves. Our actions, our, our idols we lay down at your feet. We confess you as Lord and Savior. May our interests be put to the side and may they be second to you as we worship you. Thank you for your love and, and your grace and your patience with us and for your war, will that is being carefully unfurled. Bless this bread and this cup. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth when he says that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread just as we have taken. And when he had given thanks, which we have just done, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And remember, for every time, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.